This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Joining us from the New York Times, David Farenthold. And uh, we have to talk about these documents. I'm now hearing that the controls of secret documents when it comes to high-level officials like presidents and vice presidents are pretty lax. So is it possible that there are secret documents uh, scattered all over Washington? That's what this whole episode has made me wonder. Yeah, I mean, I think... We've heard people say in the past that there are lots and lots of documents that are quote unquote classified that are not treated that way. There's different gradations of classified documents. But the revelation that Joe Biden had classified documents in these various places does make me think, yeah, but this is something that just gets sort of handed out and the people, you know, at some level, they just sort of take them as papers, as briefing papers and take them home. There's nobody waiting around after the meeting to collect all these classified papers. Okay, so so which way is this going to cut? Is this going to get Biden in more trouble or does this mean Trump is actually in less trouble? You know, I don't think Biden's will be legal trouble. I I could be wrong and it could be political trouble. But Biden's my guess is that they're, you know, given the different sort of levels of classification that they'll say, well, these were less classified, classified documents. And, you know, maybe Biden didn't even know it had happened. I don't know what it means for Trump. I mean, hopefully it shouldn't mean anything. Hopefully Trump's case should be judged on its own merits. But, you know, maybe if it turns out that Trump took, you know, was more deliberate, was more personally involved and took much you know, more classified documents in terms of the, you know, they were more secret than the ones Biden took. You know, maybe it gives them a stronger ground to prosecute Trump. But you're right that I think it does kind of raise the idea that maybe there are classified documents floating around everywhere with these ex-presidents and ex-vice presidents. And that raises the bar for what you'd have to prove Trump did to show he was different. Yeah, I mean, no matter I know there's a big difference in the number of documents involved, but if they throw the book at Trump and Biden gets off scot free, uh, it looks bad. I think at this point, Biden needs to needs to hope that Trump's philosophy of mental declassification is actually a thing because he's a sitting <laughs> he's a sitting president. So conceivably, he could just think them declassified and he's out of hot water. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The, 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 I've been surprised the number of, the, you know, how many different news cycles there have been where new documents were found for President Biden. Yeah. Uh, your latest story in The New York Times is about restaurant workers and how they the training that they pay for to get their food handlers permit actually goes to a company that's been lobbying to keep their wages down. How does that work? Yeah. Well, and I should say this is not does not apply in Washington state. You all have a different system where the money goes to the counties. Right. But yeah, basically the National Restaurant Association, their members, restaurant owners employ more low wage workers than anybody any and in any industry. And the, even waiters get less than the minimum wage because there's a system where tips are supposed to make up the rest. So the National Restaurant Association cares a lot about the minimum wage and tries everything it can to keep the minimum wage from rising anywhere, nationally or state level. And so they, 15 years ago, they needed more money for that fight. They wanted more cash to pay for lobbying. And they came up with this system where they offer these classes, these food handler classes, and then they lobbied states, big states, California, Texas, Illinois, to require those classes, the kinds of classes that they they already offered. For millions of people. And so the, the cost for the workers is not that much. It's about $15 in a couple hours of your time. Um, but if you get you know, 3.6 million people, which is what they've gotten over the last decade, if you get 3.6 million people paying $15 a piece, it's a lot of money. And so what they've gotten is enough money out of workers to pay for the boss's management goal. So the, basically the workers 
pay to keep their own salaries low, usually without even knowing it. I mean, the most insidious thing about this is that states, of course, have requirements on on uh, restaurant workers. They have to know how to handle food properly. Obviously, you don't want people to get uh, to get sick. But it, it turns out that the the restaurant association actually bought one of the companies that provided these tests for the express purpose of uh, of fundraising. It seems like that's right. It used to be that this test company is called ServeSafe. Uh, it used to be run by a charity, and the, it raised money to give scholarships to culinary students and other things. Uh, but the charity was associated with the National Restaurant Association. They had a lot of board members in common. There's a big, you know, huge power dynamic there. So the, the restaurant association says, "Hey, we want this thing. We want to use it for lobbying." And the the restaurant association's charity gives it up um, for less money, I think, than they could have gotten on the open market. And so now, yeah, this thing that used to be a charity fundraiser is now a lobbying fundraiser. Okay, I see that once again we're getting near the debt limit. The government's getting near default, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any indication that the the Republicans running Congress are really going to push this over the edge? Well, my old paper, The Washington Post, had a story last week saying that one of the secret deals Kevin McCarthy had made with the right wing in order to get elected speaker was to sort of propose this plan where they could you know, breach the debt ceiling and still continue paying the military. When the government runs out of money, they would prioritize the military and Social Security. So, you know, the, the, everything else, you know, the FAA, you know, think of everything else the government does would stop. But we'd still have the military and Social Security, I, like which is a really interesting view of what Republicans believe that the, the essential functions of the government are. But that's not, you know, they don't have, they don't control both houses of Congress. That will never become law or even get passed and sent to the president. But they intended it as a signal like, hey, look, we're ready to breach this thing at any time. You know, I think that the Biden people have learned from the Obama experience uh, back in 2011 with this and have a little more backup plans than Obama did. But I do think we're going to have some kind of legislative showdown. I think the Democrats want some level of that because they want the Republicans to sort of scare everybody and show that they're mm-hmm. crazy and, you know, whatever, shouldn't be allowed to govern anymore. So they, they want to carve out military salaries and Social Security. What about retirees who have money in the U.S. Treasury and are expecting interest payments? No, I mean, the, the, if we, if the implicit in this is the idea that the U.S. government stops paying its debts. So, yeah, U.S. Treasuries will be not very worth very much. If you've invested in U.S. Treasuries, they will go down uh, and the whole economy will collapse, you know, or will at least be shaken. So if you're counting on the stock market to retire, you will also be in bad shape. I mean, this is not a reasonable, realistic plan. It, you know, the damage done to the economy would be so great that nobody would actually do this. But I think you know, the Republicans, as we talked about last week, their whole thing is like, well, we don't want to do it. You know, let's make somebody else do this. You know, we don't want to be the ones to have to govern. <laughs> Uh, but the, I thought the idea was was to get the government to spend less money. So what you're saying is that this would simply make a lot of basically middle class lives miserable and not save anything. Yes. I mean, I, I think the Republicans are hoping that they that they will get a deal like they did last time in 2011 to cut government spending as a result of, you know, they'll, they'll take this hostage. And then in order to, for them not to shoot the hostage, they will get that deal. Of course, everyone remembers that in 2011, they got a deal that cut spending. But then as soon as Trump came into office, the Republicans were fine with spending and spent, you know, the, the deficit ballooned. You know, this is only a problem when Democrats are in office. Right. Uh, by the way, speaking of Trump, since you brought up the name again, uh, has he had any rallies or any campaign events or anything? No, it's been sort of a, like front porch campaign from the 1800s. I think he's planning on something in South Carolina later this month, but that will be his first public event in, I think, weeks. David Farenthold from the New York Times. David, thank you. Thank you. Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. 
They clear the roads. Many times they do it in the dark of night. They have no protection from drivers whizzing past. So is it time to give tow truck drivers more visibility? Chris Sullivan. Well, you might remember this story and you might remember this audio I'm going to play because I played it before and I'll likely play it again at some point because it is really powerful. It's from Corey Wells, who owns and operates TLC Towing in southwest Washington. He's been hit while hooking up cars, and one of his employees, Raymond Mitchell, a young husband and father of four, was killed by a passing log truck as he was trying to hook up a disabled vehicle. I shouldn't be here today. I shouldn't be that emotional to you people, but I am. I love what I do, and I want to come home to my wife tonight. We need your help. That was Wells testifying before the legislature, before the 2021 session. He will likely be testifying again today when a bipartisan bill is heard that would increase the visibility of tow trucks. It would allow operators to install blue lights on the back of their rigs that they would only be able to activate while on the scene of a crash or a recovery. The bill is named in honor of Ray Mitchell and Art Anderson, the owner of another Southwest Washington tow company, Affordable Towing, that was hit and killed by a suspected drunk driver while helping a family of a disabled vehicle. Wells asked lawmakers to consider his office when looking at this bill. We don't have anything out there to protect us. We're standing on the fog line and cars are doing 70 miles an hour, inches away. Inches. Wells also asked that drivers pay better attention to Washington's slow down move over law, which does apply to tow trucks and give them enough room to operate. We're not just that guy across the state. We're your neighbors. We're the guys that come out and rescue when your car breaks down. We're those guys. We want to go home at night. We have families. They love us. AAA reports that 24 tow truck drivers die a year on our country's roads. The blue light bill made it out of the House and Senate Transportation Committee's last session, but it didn't make it out of rules. Uh, some technical issues and potential challenges there. Uh, but this would allow them a little bit different visibility, and they believe that the blue lights, uh, especially at night, certainly trigger something in drivers like oh that's a police officer and they're more likely to slow down for a police officer in the dead of night than they are for an orange or even a red light i still don't see enough people though moving over certainly you're not supposed to be in the lane directly on the shoulder when there's a police officer and i'll say even tow truck even though that's not the law no it is oh is it for the tow tow trucks it's for the irt guys it's for anything with lights on uh construction zone i just don't think it's common knowledge i know and that's beating that and so that, yeah, yeah, and that's another part of this whole thing is that that does apply. In addition, it's, I mean, slow down at minimum, you know, 10, 10 miles an hour if you can, and then get over if safe to do so. But yeah, I see in this state, I'm surprised how few people do that. I, I'm yeah. like you because, you know, I, I travel a lot on the roads and, you know, you go to Idaho and Montana, it's like a no brainer. People mm-hmm. are getting over all the time for every little thing, even if it's just a car with no like tow behind it. And so I think this just kind of adds some visibility to this. It reminds everybody that, yeah, I mean, that's a really dangerous job. Yeah. Well, for people who, you know, have that left lane camper instinct who like to slow down cars behind them, 
the law lets you do that in a case like this. You oh, can, totally, yeah. You can slow way down as you go past the tow truck if you can't move over and have the satisfaction of knowing you're delaying the guy in back of you. Yeah, well, <laughs> well I mean, it, the, the, what we need to do is just make sure that these folks come home at night. Because, yeah. um, uh, I mean, let's face it, how many times are they recovering? Because normally during a crash, like unfortunately what we're dealing with right now up in Bothell, is that, you know, when it's active, there is a bunch of everything. Mm-hmm. Even when there's a small crash, you know, you get fire trucks to show up. They block a lane. And then all of a sudden everybody leaves, but maybe the car that was involved is still there. And a tow truck driver doesn't get it for eight more hours. By that time, you know, there's nobody there but him mm. or her. And so it's they're very they're not very visible. So we'll see if this goes anywhere this year. Should be some more emotional testimony this afternoon. Should Washington join Utah as the second state in the country to lower the blood alcohol threshold for driving drunk from .08 all the way down to .05? And should retailers and manufacturers be penalized for gendered pricing? Those are a couple of the issues before the state legislature. And here is our state legislative correspondent, Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. Hello, Matt. Good morning, Dave. Day nine of a 105-day session. You know, I'm going to really date myself. I feel like I'm Ted Koppel here by saying the date. <laughs> you know, the, the precursor to Nightline on that show where the Iranian hostage yes. crisis. Remember seeing At least that, you're not uh, being held hostage. Yeah, well, I think maybe the Republicans feel like they're being held hostage down there because they can't, you know, they're the minority party. And it's gun day. Um, this is a lot of bills involving guns are going to be heard today. Seventh year that the Democrats are trying to push for a ban on assault weapons and a big one for Mayor Harrell, which is a preemption right for local city. So so like cities like Seattle can preempt state law when it comes to gun control. So that's a big one today. But you're talking about the blood alcohol level. Yes. Washington following Utah, because Utah apparently has had some success in their reduction in fatality accidents involving impaired drivers. Now, the sponsor of this is Senator John Lovick, uh, the former sheriff of Snohomish County. Drunk driving is the offense. We are the defense. That was a phrase he used when he was a trooper for 31 years about DUI enforcement. So it's big on his list. And um, and then here's the, some of the reasons why that they want to push for this. And Amy Friedheim uh, tries many cases, including vehicular homicide involves impaired driving as, as a King County deputy prosecutor. A per se level above a point zero five is dangerous. We have to get people to self-regulate. And that's the big key for her, because that's what she says was the success in Utah. It, they did not have increased arrests, but people decided, hey, you know, at point oh five, that's really uh, I don't even know how many beers I would have to have to get a point oh five. So they self-regulate. And this is what she says was the key to their success. People self-regulate that they did not have an increase in arrests. Uh, naive drinkers, as well as very tolerant drinkers, chose not to get into their car impaired. And Captain Neil Weaver of the Washington State Patrol actually testified, again, to support that same idea that they're not out there to, to arrest drunk drivers. They're out there for something else. The purpose of this DUI law is not so law enforcement can go out and make more arrests. The purpose of this DUI law is to change driver behavior and therefore save lives. 
So who would you think that would be opposing this idea if we're talking about saving lives and lowering the blood alcohol and having encouraging people to be more responsible? Well, it was uh, Julia Gordon of the Washington Hospitality Association, an industry that supports 287,000 jobs in the state, and they were opposed to lowering it. Because there's no discernible way to recognize signs of intoxication at 0.05, the 40% reduction in the threshold will put thousands of businesses and tens of thousands of employees at new risk when there are no tools available to assist them. Now, when she says tools, I mean, obviously there are breathalyzers out there, but how many bartenders and restaurant servers actually go up to a patron right now and say, hey, can you blow into this? Because we're responsible for when you leave mm-hmm. and you've had maybe a couple beers or a, a glass of wine. Um, and and they've been trained on what may be a .08 you know, intoxication level when they, when they, when they serve people, but a .05... Uh, it's really hard. Uh, it, um, there was testimony that you know between 0.04 to 0.06 is really when people get intoxicated, but it's 0.08 when they start showing it. Um, again, and another group that was opposing the idea was the was uh, Josh McDonald. He represents the he's the executive director of the Washington Wine Institute, and they represent 10,000 people making wine. Change to 0.05 BAC uh, could turn this responsible, moderate consumption experience for both the customer and winery into a very serious concern. And they're worried about people te- testing Washington wines because, you know, you go to a wine uh, shop and you want to uh, do a, a wine sample and then you go buy the wine. That's kind of a tradition on, on wines and people ex- exploring and finding new wines because there's so many wines out there. Mm-hmm. And that would be a deterrent effect. If people have a .05, they may not be wanting to go t- taste some wine and therefore it's fewer wines. Well, the idea is that you have somebody in your party who doesn't drink the wine, or they drink it and they spit it out, which I understand is what you do when you're tasting a lot of wine. You don't swallow it it all. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you have a designated driver. People are used to that idea. But again, these two agencies have testified against it because it can hurt. Now, uh, does it have a chance? Yeah, maybe. It maybe has a chance. I think that it's going to be the science that's going to hold it back because we all know that a .05, it's, it could be real borderline for somebody. Uh, they, they testify that people who have um, uh, a problem with alcohol, they really don't feel any effect uh, with alcohol until they get a .08 or a .1. That was a testimony. So it's going to be hard. To, it's going to be the science that makes or breaks this one. Has anybody ever actually been held responsible? I mean, a bartender responsible. Do they go back after a, a drunk driving crash and hold the bartender responsible on a regular basis? I never hear of that happening. I, I haven't heard about it happening, but funny you, you should bring that up because there is a companion bill in a way that they're going to go back 15 years now. If you're in a DUI case, they're going to go back 15 years to see if you've had a DUI case, and they can hold that against you. Right now, the law says they can only go back 10 years uh, in the drunk driving case, and that was actually heard yesterday. And one more thing, Dave, we're going to talk about uh, gender pricing. Um, and this is about, uh, if you want to kind of define what gender pricing is all about, gender pricing is uh, prohibits a business from charging different prices for any two goods that are, and here's the key phrase, substantially similar based on the gender of the target market. Mm-hmm. Now, this idea and was co-authored by a group of Lake Washington high school students after they went out and did a study and showed that uh, basically of the sim- so, so substantially similar products between men and women, 42% for women were priced higher and 18% for men. Here's a high school student who's co-authored the bill. 
Basically, to violate this proposed law, two substantially similar products have to be priced differently solely because of the gender that the products are marketed to. And here's what it would not cover. When the bill says substantially similar products, it is not referring to products with different materials or ingredients, different functions or uses, or even different brands. Those are all fair and valid reasons to price products differently and would not be in violation of the bill. And again, who is opposing this? Well, Kate Beeson represents the Washington Food Industry Association. We wholeheartedly agree that products in our stores should not be priced differently based on gender, especially if they're substantially similar. Unfortunately, this bill would unfairly penalize local grocers for pricing set by manufacturers. Local grocery and convenience stores simply add their small markup. They do not make any pricing decisions based on product type. And there's the rub. They're pushing it to the to the manufacturers, which could yeah. be out of state, and the local stores are hung out to dry. Matt Markovich, thank you, Matt. You're welcome. You're having lots of conversations with this AI. It's become one of my, one of my best friends. It's kind of <laughs> creepy, but... When Jibo died, you needed a new one, yeah? <laughs> That's true. Mm, poor Jibo. Yeah. Rest in yeah. peace. Yeah. Brought to you by Heritage Homecraft, your daily dose of kindness. One of our faves, Steve Hartman. Uh, it's about kids who needed to do the right thing. At Glen Lake Elementary in Hopkins, Minnesota, recess is a mixed blessing. On the one hand, there's so much to do. But on the other hand, not everyone can do it. It just didn't seem fair that some kids were just left out. And it's really sad to see other kids go through that. They didn't look happy, and recess is about having fun. Glen Lake has a lot of students with physical disabilities, but no wheelchair, merry-go-round, swings, or any adaptive playground equipment whatsoever. Come on in. Which really bothered the kids in Betsy Julian's fifth grade class, to the point where one day they asked her, why can't we just buy the equipment ourselves? I said, do you know how much that costs? Yeah. It costs a lot of money. 300000 $300,000 by her estimation. But the kids were undeterred. They started collecting spare change, then held a bake sale, printed flyers, and went door to door. Then they began cold calling businesses and even got restaurants to donate a portion of their profits. This went on for months until last week when they hit their goal. We were all very happy on the inside and on the outside. The smile on my face, I could say, was an ear-to-ear smile. I was just really happy that we made it. Reese Riley says they worked so hard. It was overwhelming to finally know a more inclusive playground would be coming. You're a good kid. Thanks. And as for the kids who will benefit, they seem to appreciate the effort almost more than the result. First time I set foot on this playground, I'm probably going to start crying. From seeing the effort that all the school has made. Mrs. Julian couldn't agree more. My future as an adult is bright knowing that this generation of students, of change makers, see something that needs fixing. And they go for it head first. The whole thing. Head first and dive deep. What's our next step? After raising the 300000 Mrs. Julian's class set a new goal to the ceiling and beyond. They now hope to buy adaptive playground equipment for other schools in the district, turning loneliness and isolation into child's play. There we go. Steve Hartman on the road in Hopkins, Minnesota. Thank you. 
749 Seattle's Morning News, and here he is from the Gene Ursula Show, which starts at 9. G. Scott, what's happening? What's happening? Well, the Seahawks season apparently ended mm-hmm. uh, over the weekend prematurely. Mm-hmm. So the question is, uh, what next? Do you think Geno's still the guy? Yes. I still think Geno Smith will be a Seahawk next season. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like this. Uh, imagine remodeling your kitchen, okay? Yes. And you're remodeling We're your back kitchen. To How's your remodel going? By uh, it's way? done. Oh, good. It's good. Yeah. Uh, so you're remodeling your kitchen, and the first thing you want to talk about, you want to talk about the kitchen cabinets, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you, there's, hey, there's different levels to the cabinets, right? You can go here, really, really, really inexpensive. Or quiet you can go, clothes. You go all the way to the that. quiet clothes, all nice. that stuff, right? Yeah. You Get what you pay for. And Geno Smith is a quality quarterback, 32 years old. You get what you quarterback. You get what you know with that quarterback. This is how it's going to look. If it was an exclusive tag, franchise tag, if that happens with Geno Smith and the Seahawks, then that would look like this. Geno Smith would make, uh, it would be $45 million for one season. So that would be basically mm-hmm. saying the Seahawks would put an exclusive tag on Geno Smith. Nobody else can talk to Geno Smith. That's our guy, $45 million. And he gets that whether he wins or loses a game. R- right. He gets okay. that wow. for, the, for one season. Nice. Mm-hmm. A non-exclusive franchise tag it would be about $32 million. So we're going to put the non-exclusive franchise tag on you. But, you know, if somebody wants to get out there and negotiate, that can happen as well. What I really ultimately think is going to happen is I think the Seahawks are going to end up signing him for about $30 million a season. They'll give him a shorter-term extension. We'll probably look – I think it'll probably be maybe a three-year uh, extension – Maybe about three, let's say it's a three year, uh, $90 million extension, and you give him an X amount guarantee, whether it's 50 or 60 million guarantee. So that if he doesn't produce, he can be traded or another team right. can grab him. Right. But, he, okay. but, but, but at the same time, you know, they give him something. Now, I think the Seahawks are also in a good situation. They have Geno Smith, who's 32 years old. And by the way, don't forget about Drew Locke. The quarterback that's 24 years old, right. who is a decent, he's a pretty good quarterback. He just hasn't had the opportunity, but he is also young, developing, understanding, sitting behind Geno Smith in that system. And so I think that the Seahawks, I think that they are okay at the quarterback position. Don't they have some pretty high draft picks, too? you right about that. Thank you to the Denver Broncos with the number five pick. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Danger Russ, so, Mr. So the, Unstoppable. So the, so the question has been and will be, will the Seahawks take a quarterback with the number five pick in the NFL draft? My opinion, I don't think so because of the, all of the reasons why I just told you. They have Geno Smith. They have Drew Locke. I think that the Seahawks take someone on defense yeah. for the number with the number five. Somebody pick. who can intercept lots of passes. <laughs> I mean, well, the biggest thing is is someone who can actually rush the uh, passer. Right, right. If there's one difference between the San Francisco 49ers and the Seahawks, is their front seven. What's the front seven? The front seven are the four defensive linemen that are up front, and essentially the three linebackers. And the San Francisco 49ers are very elite, Colleen, in that department. They're yeah. really, really good, led by that dude, Nick Bosa, with 18 and a half sacks on the season. Mm. I mm. J- that was a lot of information to take in. The front My- seven, that's a new phrase 
news for me. My so bad. I got to No, no, not your bad. This okay. is what this is for is okay. to educate Dave and I on uh, the yes. sports. It's, it's taken yeah. 12 years. So we need we need a heavy hitter in the front 7 because mm-hmm. we're good in the QB position, yeah. Geno Smith mm-hmm. and Drew Locke. Mm-hmm. Did I say that right? You that did it. Very good. You did it. Oh, and and and, and, the, and say this, the run game is solid. The run game is solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just the defensive solid. game that's porous. Mm, porous. I like that. No, you can't use porous. You can't do that. Not that one, bro. Not that one. That's a $10 word. We can't use the, that. The defensive side of the ball, you know, of course, they had a lot of injury. Jamal Adams was injured this season, yeah. right? Wasn't, wait, wait. When you said Drew Locke, I remember Geno Smith got his his chance because Drew Locke got injured, right? Wasn't that? No, I thought Drew Locke got injured. What was no, that? One? No, no, okay. no, no, All right. no, 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 no. See, now I'm getting too big for my britches and I'm starting to pull things out that aren't true. <laughs> no, no, no. So, so again, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be watching this, but very sad the Seahawks loss against the San Francisco 49ers. I think uh, we all wanted them to continue playing, but at the same time, I think they had a very good season, and I do think that the San Francisco 49ers, the San Francisco 49ers, Pretty good. We did have a question from a listener, real quick. Hmm. It says, Hey, G, it's from uh, Texas Freight, is okay. the name they've given themselves. Okay. Hey, G, what do you think about the chances of the Cowboys versus the 49ers? Whew. Well, I think Niners right, right off top. But the way the Cowboys played last night, if they can bottle that up and play like that the rest of the time, whoo, the Cowboys would be tough, but I do think the Niners win. Okay. G Scott, nine o'clock. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.